Hello, welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as just new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. Hi, my name's Jeff. I'm going to be your guide today as we look into some kind of catastrophic events that might happen in the universe or that have happened. But before we get into that discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe. Click on the bell icon so you can be informed of our new videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Hugh, good to have you here today. I know you've been out traveling and uh, it's good to kind of be back in the studio and do some recording here. I know you've got some something that's at least catastrophic, so I'll let you go ahead and start the discussion for well, us today. Well, it looks like we both are going to be talking about something catastrophic, so a little different uh, area of the universe, so um, yeah. This is a paper that got published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters by a large team of astronomers uh, where they have discovered a new kind of object, uh, a new kind of risk uh, for life in the universe. And uh, the technical term they came up with, they've yet to come up with a really good name for it, but they refer to it as um, luminous fast cooling transients. Well, that's means, dull. That's really dull, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're going to come up with a name like a pulsar or something like that for it, quasar. But so far, that's, you know, it's a new discovery, so they've yet to come up with a good name for it. Luminous fast-cooling transients. Yes. So it's obviously something very bright, relatively quick. That's it. You got okay, it. Okay, all right. Then transients. Okay. okay. <laughs> and uh, it was discovered by the Atlas uh, group. And ATLAS, let me read what it actually stands for, Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert Survey. And you say, hey, this thing is trying to find asteroids. Mm -hmm. uh, but they said, hey, they looked at the data and said, we're going to look for supernova okay. uh, in distant galaxies. And that's how they discovered uh, a new category of uh, a cosmic explosive event. So this isn't just a supernova, but it's at least akin to its behavior in some sense. Well, they only I presume found, that's why they're sensitive to things like that. Right, right. And they've only found three of them. Okay. Uh, and they're in distant galaxies. Uh, but what surprised them is that they're in galaxies that are passive. And what, you know, that's a term for a galaxy that long ago has stopped star formation. Mm -hmm. So these are galaxies with old stars. So okay, so is you know because generally I think passive would be the converse of active. You've got active galac active galactic nuclei. That's where the interior of the galaxy is feeding, and that's what it is. So it's not passive in terms of that. It's passive in terms of star formation. Passive in terms of star formation. So these are galaxies that have long ago stopped forming stars. Okay, because uh, you know the when you see something really luminous and it's relatively brief, you immediately think, oh supernova mm -hmm. or new kind of supernova. Uh, but only really big stars go supernova right. and big stars burn up quickly. And these passive galaxies don't have big stars. Mm. So uh, it's like, it doesn't look like it's a supernova. I mean, and we're finding them in galaxies where supernova well, or shouldn't be occurring at all. Interesting. And the other thing is they said, it doesn't match the characteristics of a supernova. Uh, for one thing, um, it rises very fast and dims very quickly. The Meaning right, what? Because, I mean, supernova do that on the order of 30-ish days. Yeah, this does it in nine days. Nine days, okay. So, so not much faster. To, okay, goes up to peak brightness much faster. And the really uh, you know, distinguishing factor, how quickly it fades. Mm -hmm. 
So its luminosity drops by a factor of six times in just 15 days. Okay. So it's like this gets really bright quickly and then dims very quickly. And the other thing is the peak brightness is six times, 16 times higher on average uh, than the peak brightness of a Type 1A supernova. Wow, okay. So these yeah. are very these are very bright. They're, They're very just much bright. faster. Okay. Because type one supernovae are your brightest supernova uh, in terms of their peak brightness. And this is sixteen times brighter than that. And so uh, they were just saying, you know, what are we dealing with? Because mm-hmm. it's like we've never seen anything like this before. Okay. And if it's not a supernova, what is it? And uh, the first thing they looked at is well, maybe it's a supermassive black hole that's consuming a star. Mm-hmm. That might explain it. But what they discovered is that these events are taking place at 13,000 to 32,000 light years from the centers of these galaxies. Okay. It's like there aren't going to be any big super, there aren't going to be supermassive black holes Mm -hmm. anywhere except at the center of the galaxy. So they said that explanation doesn't work. And so they looked at six different uh, possible uh, explanations for Mm -hmm. this new phenomena. Uh, but they were able to discount all but two. Which and are? The two that remains is a stellar mass black hole, not a big black hole, but one that weighs a few times more than the sun. Okay. So uh, basically a supergiant star that went supernova and wound up as a black hole that comes in a few times the mass of our star, the sun. Uh, and where that um, stellar mass black hole uh, is having a collision uh, with an ordinary mass star. So, okay. Because, you know, these galaxies are filled with stars like the sun and stars that are smaller. And so if you get a collision event uh, where the black hole is basically absorbing mm-hmm. uh, a medium mass or small mass star, that could explain the phenomenon. And well, that, that's kind of interesting because as a general rule, stars don't collide. And so, I mean, no. you know, the, you, you think, okay, he's, even in galaxy collisions, the stars tend to not collide. Well, so what would, uh, these any passive, idea what would be causing that? Or? Yeah, well, passive galaxies are typically galaxies uh, that might have been spiral, but the spiral structure collapses, mm-hmm. and they become an ellipsoidal galaxy where the star density is high. Okay. Or it could be a galaxy that's filled with um, globular clusters mm-hmm. where the star density is really high. And these, you know, like a, a typical globular cluster as a few hundred thousand stars uh, within about 10 light years. Okay. So, I mean, where we are, you got to go- like 12 stars in 10 light years. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So a very high density of stars where you actually have a possibility of these collisions. Gotcha, okay. And uh, the key factor in our modeling is they picked up another observational clue, and that is these three events, very bright optical luminosity, Mm -hmm. but they were not able to detect radio radiation or x-ray radiation. Okay. You know, again, that's another reason why they ruled out a supernova. Mm-hmm. With a supernova, you get radio radiation, you get x-ray radiation. Here you get very bright optical radiation, hmm. but not the radio uh, or the x-ray, or at least not at a detectable level. Yeah, okay. And so that's why they were saying, well, we can actually explain the very low radiation of radio and x-rays if it's... Uh, a small black hole absorbing a relatively small mass star. Okay. Uh, The other thing they looked at uh, were intermediate mass black holes. 
So this is like 30 to 100 solar mass type things no, or a few, larger? Than? A few thousand. A few thousand, okay. Yeah. So this is just not up at the millions, which would not be up at the, the millions, super massive ones. Okay. Be the super massive black holes. Intermediates are at the low thousands. Okay. And stellar mass are a few times the mass of our star of the sun. Right. Uh, and they said they're modeling more favored the stellar mass black holes than the intermediate black holes, intermediate mm -hmm. mass black holes. But where you're going to have a high star density is in globular clusters. Right. And globular clusters have intermediate black uh, mass black holes. So... Is there enough... I mean, okay, so they found these events. Can they tell whether they're in globular clusters or are they just far enough away they can see they're, they're in a far galaxy? Enough or away they can't, they can't even identify what's going on or where they, they are. They yet. do know that, uh, you know, spheroidal and ellipsoidal galaxies typically have a lot of globular clusters. So so they can see enough to know and identify that they're in these passive galaxies, galaxies though, right. correct? So, okay, they, they so there's some sort of observations. It's not just you're seeing the transient itself, you're seeing the transient and the environment at some level. Well, also keep in mind, Jeff, at the end of the paper, they say we've only found three. Right. <laughs> you know, to really see what we're dealing with, we need a lot more observations. Mm -hmm. So we found a new category of astronomical object. Nothing like this has ever been discovered before. Right. This is like a new research endeavor for the astronomical community. And basically, let's find out more details about what these objects really are like. You know, it kind of reminds me when they discovered uh, radio burst events. Mm -hmm. It's like there's a lot of speculation. What are these things? And it took a lot of follow-up observations to really nail down what we're dealing with. Basically, they're saying the same thing is true here. Mm -hmm. We need to do a lot more research. Uh, but they said our initial results indicate these objects are relatively rare. Okay. You know, for obvious reasons, nobody discovered them before. <laughs> so they could right. be somewhat rare. Um, and they did an initial calculation of how frequently these events occur. Mm -hmm. And it's like one per cubic gigaparsec per year. Okay, so uh, how many in our galaxy would that be, or how often would one occur in our galaxy? Well, not very often, because a gigaparsec is, uh, you know, 3.26 million light years. So that's a lot of... A lot of galaxies you're encompassing yeah, in that. you're okay. looking at hundreds of thousands of galaxies. And what they pointed out is that uh, if this actually stands up as a true rate, uh, it's about 100,000 times less than the core collapse supernova rate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see about one of those every century in a galaxy. Right, okay. So to answer your question, uh, you know, that's about uh, once every 100,000 years you'd see one in okay. a galaxy like ours. So although they said, uh, based on their study, you're probably not going to find many of these in a large spiral galaxy mm -hmm. because you're going to need to have the star density high enough where you got the possibility and one of these smaller black holes could have a collision event uh, with a star. But, I mean, you know, we have a reasonable number of uh, globular clusters in our galaxy. Presumably, wouldn't we have those intermediate mass black holes there? Well, I, you know, what they didn't address in the paper that caught my attention, this has a potential to deliver a lot more design features that okay. explains why we have advanced life in our Milky Way galaxy. Because one of the special features of our Milky Way galaxy comes in at 1.2 trillion times the mass of our star, the sun. Mm -hmm. So we live in a big galaxy. 
Right. But it has only 152 globular clusters. Okay. Uh, and galaxies, That's actually a relatively small amount, considering how large our galaxy would be. It is, because yeah. you know, galaxies are sized typically of thousands. Right. I mean, I think uh, M87 has got like 15,000 globular clusters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, a, it's definitely more massive than our Milky Way galaxy, but not that much more massive. And so we're under dense mm-hmm. uh, with these globular clusters. And the core of our galaxy, the star density isn't as high right. as what we see in other large mass galaxies. So this is additional evidence that uh, our galaxy is fine-tuned. We live in a local group of galaxies mm-hmm. where the galaxies are far enough apart. And uh, there are no uh, big passive galaxies mm-hmm. in our local groups, so that lowers the risk that we would be exposed to the radiation from these events. Well, I mean, couldn't you argue at some level? I mean, I, I think these are just fascinating and cool, but uh, at some level, these are cool but benign events in the sense, that, if I remember you correctly, you said they don't give off a lot of X-ray emission. They don't. It seems like most of it's concentrated in the optical which would mean you'd get bright flashes of light, but not a lot of other consequences to it. <clears throat> yes, uh, that's true. Uh, they haven't looked at gamma rays, so it's like, okay, okay, we need to look at the whole spectrum to see what we're dealing with. But that's a potential another design feature. Mm-hmm. These things are very explosive and dramatic, mm-hmm. uh, but not that risky uh, for advanced life. Mm-hmm. But that's... These has up a caveat. We haven't studied the whole spectrum. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, no. <laughs> and we don't know the actual rate. I mean, because they were very cautious saying, this is just a guess of mm-hmm. what the rate is. We're working with a sample size of three. Yeah, you got to be careful extrapolating from three. And, you know, <laughs> we just discovered these things. And if we're looking at, say, radio fast bursters, yeah, they thought they were extremely rare. And they discovered they weren't as rare as they initially mm-hmm. thought. So they said, you know, we need to do... And hey, they found it by accident, sort right. of, by looking at a, using an instrument that was designed to detect asteroids. Mm-hmm. They said we could really follow this up by seriously focusing on this new kind of object, and then we'd actually have a true population statistic uh, mm-hmm. for these objects. Out of curiosity, why do the supernova projects not pick these up? The one would think that they look a lot in optical, I mean, that they would see these optical transients and would have detected them. Do you have any any insight did they give on why maybe the supernova searches they, they hadn't revealed this? They didn't comment on that in their paper, mm-hmm. but I say, you know, the instrument they use, the ATLAS uh, instrument, uh, it's really good at picking up things that happen quickly. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the supernova things, you know, saying, you know, supernova, we can see them for about seven months. Okay. And so given that you got that long of a window, that might explain why mm. Atlas okay. picked it up, because Atlas is a better instrument for finding things that are bright for just a short period of time. Okay. And also the fact that Atlas is focusing on optical wavelengths, and these things are really bright at gotcha. optical wavelengths. So, but again, that's just a guess. Uh, right. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is a brand new discovery of a mm-hmm. brand new kind of object. Uh, similar, you're too young to remember this, but I remember when pulsars were first discovered. Right. There was a huge mystery. What are these mm-hmm. things? What are we dealing with? It took years before they really had a good understanding of what they're dealing with. Right. I think the same thing's true of this. This is opening up a whole new uh, sub-discipline uh, mm-hmm. of astronomy. 
Well, and it's fascinating. I mean, you know, you come up, it's not every day you come up with a new type of object, especially something that, you know, if this is black or stars and black holes colliding and giving off stuff, that's pretty catastrophic stuff. And to well, just now be discovering it is kind of cool. So, I mean, the discovery of pulsars uh, led to a couple of Nobel Prizes. Right. This might be a Nobel Prize thing because it's really a whole new category right. of astronomical phenomena. Definitely fascinating and interesting, uh, but also think it's got real potential to demonstrate uh, that there are design features of our galaxy, our galaxy mm -hmm. group, our galaxy cluster that might explain why advanced life is able to survive here on planet Earth. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the number of big passive galaxies within our vicinity is really low. Mm -hmm. There's none of them in our local group. And the galaxy groups that are closest to us, also, we don't see any of these objects. You've got to get to the Virgo cluster right. before you see them. And the Virgo cluster is, you know, 50 million light years away. Right. So the risk factor drops. So I see some interesting design mm -hmm. possibilities here. But again, very tentative. Yeah. We don't know a lot about these things yet. And uh, we haven't yet studied the right. whole spectrum. We don't know the population. But it's kind of like, let's wait and see. But I think this has real potential mm -hmm. uh, to strengthen the, uh, you know, the biblical creation model that we're developing here at Reasons to Believe. No, that's fair. And it also strikes me, I mean, to me, there's an apologetic significance in this or apologetic import in this just that, you know, with as much as we've been studying, you know, I mean, my question about the supernovas, why didn't they find them? It's like it seems like there's always new stuff to find. I mean, it's I mean, it, this isn't like, oh, there's some more, in, you know, mundane stuff. It's like, here we are doing this discover or study of things that we studied quite a bit. I mean, we studied a lot about asteroids. We studied a lot about supernova. And here we are discovering something pretty significant and interesting that we didn't even know to think about, uh, well, you know, 10 years ago. it takes me back to my graduate school days. I remember my first year of graduate school, the professor saying, in astronomy, there's a high potential for serendipitous discovery. Mm -hmm. But you as an astronomer have to be, you know, attuned to that possibility. Don't overlook things that seem not yeah. to fit. And, uh, you know, that proved beneficial in my own PhD work because mm -hmm. I found a couple of objects that basically didn't fit anything that people thought uh, was standard right. astronomy. Yeah. It was really new stuff. But being open to finding something serendipitous mm -hmm. uh, can be very fruitful in astronomy. And this is a serendipitous yeah. discovery. Who would have ever expected that a telescope that's focused on finding asteroids would find things billions of light years away? Uh, that so, seemed to be pretty catastrophic explosions. <laughs> right. Now, it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who said, the universe is out to kill us. So, there, uh, there's a solid point to that. I mean, it, it's, 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 hostile, it's hostile and friendly to life at the same time. So. Oh, it's friendly <laughs> here on planet Earth. It's hostile everywhere else. And this is a new hostile <laughs> new, right. new piece of evidence that, hey, yeah, the universe really is a dangerous place. Yeah. Uh, but we happen to be living in a protected region. So, very good. Anything right. final to add? No, or no I appreciate that. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's switching from one uh, hostile environment. Actually, you can make an argument that the Earth's been pretty hostile to life because, uh, you know, one of the things that we see is that Earth repeatedly is bombarded with. Uh, uh, asteroids, asteroids and comets. comets, things that just cause a lot of destruction. In fact, I, you know, one of my favorite images on the web, it's got a meteor crater out in Arizona. 
And uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's got that. And it's like, wow, look how close. It almost wiped out the visitor center. But <laughs> <laughs> Have you actually been there, Jeff? I, yes and no. So we were on vacation one year and we thought, oh, it'd be cool to go out to Meter Crater. And this was 30 years ago, better than 30 years ago. And we got, all, we drove all the way out there. It was like 10 bucks a person to get in and thought, right. that's just a lot of money. So we turned, you know, it was a big hole in the ground. So we turned around and left. So no, I've been to the outside of the visitor center, never actually been into it. So. Oh, we've been twice, and the first time we got in for free because oh, yeah. they, they hadn't set up everything yet. <laughs> there right. was no visitor center. Fair there point. was just a crater. You drove in, you got to look at it. So right. uh, next time we went there, yeah, they – and by the way, the next time we went, they wanted $20. Oh, wow, ten. okay. So we turned around. We didn't pay the $20 either. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a shame <laughs> because – well, anyway, that, that's a different discussion. But nonetheless, we find a lot of evidence of things that have impacted the earth. And one of the more popular ones is the the Chicxulub event. Uh, not sure whether that's a reference to the crater or to the actual meteor. I've been never have found that well, answer there. But The location is Chicxulub. <laughs> fair point. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we find lots of evidence that there's a, there's this impact event. And, you know, it's something on the order of 10 miles in diameter. Uh, it hit 66 million years ago. We find, uh, you know, a crater in the Yucatan Peninsula, you know, or kind of on th- just off the Yucatan Peninsula. We're talking Peninsula. Mexico, right? Uh, yeah. In fact, I got a... So it's like, here's the, here's the map. You can see it's down, uh, you know, you go down past Mexico, down into Central America, where it kind of, the south side of the Gulf of Mexico, that's where the crater is. And, you know, there's, I mean, you know, I think the crater's on the order of 100 miles across. I mean, it's a massive crater. You know, you'd expect that from some, or, you know, something that comes in 10 miles across and hits with that sort of velocity. But why this particular event is known is that it also marks the end of the dinosaurs. So it's the Cretaceous tertiary, or that's not the right, uh, it's Cretaceous paleogene. Yeah, there we go. Paleogene Cretaceous. I know it's always the KT and I always. But now they change the the name. They call it paleogene (laughs) instead of. But, you know, so it's 66 million years ago, the end of the Cretaceous period, start of uh, the next period. And, you know, because of the fascination we have with dinosaurs, a lot of people tend to know about this. But, you know, as we were talking a little bit earlier, there's a question of what actually killed the dinosaurs because there's this impact event that we can date to 66 million years ago. But then there's also a very large volcanic eruption that has occurred. And so the question is, was it climatic effects leading up to the crater caused by all the volcanoes that actually, you know, so the, the environment, the, no, I'd rather, the, the ecosphere, the environment, the, what is that called where you get the collection of all the organisms? I'm just drawing a blank on the word. The biosphere? Yeah, well, that's not <laughs> no. quite the word. We'll just, we'll just use that one. The biosphere had been weakened because of all the climate change and the impact event wiped it out or did the impact event wipe it out and that caused the volcanic and it's, you know, so there's these questions surrounding that because they both date very close to the same region of time. But what I found interesting in this paper is they were doing a study of what was the aftermath of the impact because, I mean, obviously you would expect the impact hits, throws a lot of stuff and dust and debris, makes a crater. But 
you know, something that's 10 miles on one side of the earth, that it could have global consequences. You know, what are those consequences? How long would it play out in there? And specifically what they were looking at was what were the effects to the solar radiation getting down to the surface of the earth during this time. And so this is the paper is the Chicxulub impact winter sustained by fine silicate dust. Right. And... So in their investigations, you know, you've got the, uh, you know, sulfates that are thrown up into the air that cause certain things. You've got uh, dust thrown up into the air. And then there's a third one that I'm drawing a blank on, you know, and so, the, so they're looking at just the impacts of these. And what they're finding is that it's, it was hard to explain, you know, yes, it would have consequences, but were those consequences big enough to actually have caused an extinction event? And what I find fascinating about this is that, you know, I mean, there's an abundance of evidence for this uh, Cretaceous-Paleogene impact event. Uh, you know, you find evidence of the, you know, the crater. Uh, there's uh, elements, iridium that's scattered throughout the globe, you know, from extraterrestrial impacts. So all sorts of evidence that an impact actually happened. But the particular analysis from this study was actually – uh, done by data that was extracted in North Dakota in what's called the Tanis region. And so, you know, you got the Chicxulub crater down there. And the two pictures here, the one on the left is the current, how the earth looks today in this region. The one on the right is how the earth looks 66 million years ago. And what you'll notice is that there's this long inland seaway that extended all the way up into North Dakota and beyond. And that's the region where this event is being looked at. And why that's a fascinating region is, you know, you've got this large event happens in the water, so it's going to cause tsunamis that would flow up in there. They found evidence of a lot of, or at least this particular deposit that's in place by big waves, movements of water, but they find the dating or the, the timing of the event is that the the formation happened within a couple hours, you know, within two hours after the impact event. But for the tsunami to have reached that, that was going to take, you know, on the order of a day, you know, 18 to 24 hours for the for the waves to get up there. And so they're asking the question, how could we have had uh, that much wave move or water movement if the tsunami hadn't gotten up there? And what they're uh, theorizing or what seems to make the most sense of the data is that when the asteroid hits, it creates enormous earthquakes, uh, you know, 10, 10 to 11 and a half magnitude earthquakes, which are enormous. You know, it's not just 10 or, you know, it's not just, ooh, there's nine and 10. That's all about 10% larger. It's 10 times larger earthquakes than our magnitude nine earthquakes. Yeah, and a magnitude nine will shake the bark off trees. So exactly, yeah, the, yeah. Multiply that by a hundred times. <laughs> exactly, yeah. These are enormous earthquakes. But the earthquakes do, the the seismic waves will cover that distance on the span of a couple hours. In fact, the, the shock wave, which will bring the debris along, the seismic waves are going to arrive about the same point <clears> in time. And so it explains... The, how you get this particular formation. And so what you've got is you've got the uh, asteroid coming in, excavates this huge debris, uh, sends out this ejecta curtain, you know, and it's just side by side. Now, granted, this is, you know, on the, uh, it's like about 3,000 kilometers away, you know, North Dakota t down right, to right. The, the, tip of, the tip of Mexico, if you will. 
and all this is deposited within a couple hours. And this per, the particular region they're looking at is this point bar, which is this, uh, you know, you get these on the inside of a large meandering river. It's the inside of the curve where stuff gets deposited. And so there's this large point bar. And just for scale of, of what's being looked at here, that point bar extends, uh, has a vertical displacement of about 10 meters. Uh, and it has a, a horizontal displacement, something on the order of 50 meters. And so you see evidence of this impact event or the stuff being ejected from the blast wave and being deposited there. Uh, and what you, so you get the seismic waves that come along. They drive these large... Uh, I, I don't know to pronounce it. It's S-E-I-C-H-E. I'm going to call it psyche for lack of a, uh, knowing the proper way to do it. These psyche waves will drive a whole bunch of debris up on there, cause these emplacements. And so it takes all of the material in there and it actually, in the aftermath of the extinction event, you're going to get this large deposit. It turns out it's about a meter or so thick or meter to two meters thick. So there's just a lot of material there to investigate. And what they were particularly focused on here, there's the silicate dust, there's, oh, there's the soot was the third thing the because, soot, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. in the aftermath, the collision is going to cause a lot of fires, but it ejects a lot of superheated debris. And as it comes and rains back in, it's going to start fires across the globe. And again, so you see a lot of uh, soot, uh, I think... Mu- Roughly 17% of the, the the soot that was formed in the fossil deposits is from the impact. You know, rough, you know, something on the order of 85% is from wildfires that are started from other regions. So you got a lot of things going on here. All those papers have been published years ago making the point that this uh, impact ignited wildfires literally all over the entire planet. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the contention in there. Right. But I mean, you know, you do also have to remember there's only, you know, what thirty percent of the Earth's surface is uh, that, land. and so you know, yeah. so yeah, I mean, yeah, you can ignite wildfires across all the continents, but there's there's more there, and so you know, the whole point of that is that they're trying to figure out what in the world actually went on in the aftermath of this. In the context of the dinosaurs. In the context of the dinosaurs, right. and in the context of okay, so you got this large impact. Could this, I mean, yeah, you're going to have fires, it's going to cause stuff in the atmosphere, but will that just be, well, life's rough for a while, or could it actually cause the extinction? And that's what they're looking at in this. And and one of the interesting things they found is that because they have so much material in this deposit, they were able to go through and investigate what are the sizes of the dust that has been scattered around because we can get a pretty good measure on the amount of sulfur, the sulfates that are in the air and how much they would reflect light and what that it would do. And it would have, uh, you know, a, a kind of the effect on the order of about a year of what it would diminish the uh, solar radiation that's getting down to the surface. Uh, you can talk about the the soot and it has, there's less of that, but it's got a longer residence time. And But there, it seemed like for the dust that it was going to be kind of a smaller plate because it would precipitate out more quickly uh, just because of... uh, I missed a plot in here. Uh, There was another plot I had in here where they were looking at, you know, typically the sizes are down around, you know, micron-sized or nanometer-sized, and you can look at how quickly those precipitate out of the environment or they're they're deposited out out of the atmosphere... And those are deposited out at much quicker rates. Uh, you know, you know, you can make measurements of them. 
But what they found is that by studying this the deposit on top of this point bar, they were able to get a better estimate of the size of the dust that's put up in there. And the way the plot looks, it's like you know, the, the micron and the nanometer sized are much higher deposit, deposition rates, whereas for the sizes that we would expect fr or it, from this collision, they were actually at a much lower deposition rate. And so they would stick around in the atmosphere for much, much longer which means they would have a much greater effect on how this particular impact and affected the planet. What are the, the time scales? I'm assuming we're looking at a few days for the small size stuff and several months for the bigger. Well, so that, so that's that's the the short the the long answer is that when you when you get down to this when they look at the dust, the dust is on the left side of this plot, and so it's dust and soot, and the silicates and oh, then the, or this the, answers my question and the combined. So what what they're showing is that on the bottom plot you see you know the green and the white that's the uh, photosynthetic active radiac active radiation, and so the more green it is, the higher it is, and you can see what it looks like down at the bottom before the impact. Actually, they're able to determine that the impact happened in the spring of that year, which I find fascinating. I love mm -hmm. the things that scientists right, can right. come up with. Day after the impact, you can see there's a little white blob around the uh, Yucatan Peninsula where you just got stuff being sprayed up in there, lots of dust. Uh, there's uh, wildfires and soots. Uh, and then there's also more sulfates being ejected. And so that causes a problem shortly thereafter due to all of that. But what you'll find is that the dust actually begins to dominate because it stays in the atmosphere. And so you have almost two full years where all photosynthetic activity on the planet has been shut down. And that two full years effectively means that there's just no... There's nothing for the dinosaurs Exactly. To eat. There's no source of food for anything. And so, yeah. you know, for two full years, you can just wipe out any sort of food production or any sort of energy production. That does have the consequence that it could drive a global, global yeah, it catastrophe. It becomes global literally within a few days. It really does, yeah. yeah. Uh, One day just north of, southern North America, but by a few days... It well, it, it, it's a little hard here because we go from one day to the next year. Right. But what you see is that, you know, the sulfates have a pretty broad, pretty rapid effect around the planet. Right. The soot and the, the dust have a smaller effect, but they continue and right. reside in the atmosphere a lot longer. And so the soot a year later is still causing problem. The sulfates have kind of largely dissipated. The dust is still there. And in fact, not only there one year, it's almost, there almost two years later, still causing these big problems. And it and shuts it's about, down photosynthesis, but exactly. also it's going to cause respiratory problems for big animals. Oh yeah, no, yeah. and, and so I think good. I think I read a comment in there that, you know, almost any four-footed mammal larger than two meters in size was yeah, I just nothing survived this, and so they might actually die from respiratory uh, issues right. before they die from starvation. Right, but I you know I just found this interesting, <clears throat> or what I found intriguing about this, or. Remarkable is that one, we're able to put that detailed of a timeline of how quickly each of the you know the dust, the soot, and the the sulfates, how much they are you know sulfate aerosols were impacting the photosynthetic rate on the ground, and to see just how long lived that was. I mean, you're talking now, two years time later. Scales for this are taking into account just the impact of the uh, the asteroid hitting in, in Chicxulub. 
Yeah, this is just the this this is a, a climate model based on the aftermath of that impact. So event. in reality, we're probably looking at something more severe because the impact ignited all those volcanoes in the Deccan Plateau, which is going to cause a contributing factor here, I presume. Well, it, de it, depends on, it depends on what types of eruptions the Deccan Plateau, do they throw, uh, they did say that's going to contribute a lot of greenhouse gases and other things like that, but that's going to be on the time scale of tens and hundreds and thousands but of years. But you're also going to get sulfur aerosols, uh, you're going to get ash and dust. And we're talking thousands of volcanoes, so it's a big factor. It is, but it's it's unclear to me, and and I I know they didn't include that in they this didn't analysis. That. So That's it, it would asking. be an additional. It, it would be an additional so effect might, in addition to all this. It yeah. might. It's definitely going to make for a more severe uh, scenario than what we got here. Exactly. Although it could just do it in more local regions rather than global regions. Sure. That, that's a question that's on that they didn't address in this paper <clears throat> at all. So well, this also explains, uh, Jeff. Uh, why we see the detrovars doing so well uh, during this episode. That makes they sense. They got a lot of dead tissue <laughs> to feed on. A lot of stuff on. to work on. Yeah. <laughs> so they're doing okay. Yeah. Uh, but everything else is uh, getting wiped out. Yeah. You know, and, and what, you know, this is uh, one of the kind of apologetic significant or the connection that I would make with that is, you know, when you look at Psalm 104, which is a creation Psalm that parallels what goes on in Genesis one, there's this passage kind of in the context of, it seems like in the context of day six, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. And then an asteroid hits and you hide your, um, that's my <laughs> insertion there. <laughs> you hide your Face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die. They return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. That life was thriving on Earth before this impact event. <clears throat> this impact event happened, and life was catastrophic. I mean, you know, it just decimated in a lot of ways. But right after that, very quickly after that, life is thriving again and a life that is more suitable for us being on the planet. And so, you know, it's in the context of Psalm 104, you see God preparing the planet for us. It seems like with this impact event, we're getting a picture of some of the processes he might have used to prepare the planet for us. Well, you know, Jeff, I just got back from Asia and in uh, my audiences, this came up repeatedly. Oh, yeah. If there's a good God, why do we have these? terrible mass extinction events. Mm -hmm. But I took, I basically threw up this passage, Psalm right. 104. It says, notice it talks about God recreating. Mm -hmm. After every mass extinction event, there's a mass speciation event. And they said, well, why would God need to have that complicated of a process? I said, the sun's getting brighter. Mm -hmm. If the sun's getting brighter, <clears throat> you need God to remove light from planet Earth and replace it with life that draws more greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And only a mind is yeah. going to know how frequently these mass extinction events need to be, how intense they need to be, and uh, what new life to replace mm -hmm. the old life that goes extinct. Well, I think that's a great point. And I, I, I find I did not appreciate just how dramatically Earth has changed from when it first formed to what it looks like today. I mean, there are just so many things mm -hmm. we look and assume, oh, that's the way it's always looked. And, you know, the atmosphere for the longest time was opaque, at, or not opaque, but uh, translucent at best. And, you know, for a long time that the oceans were 
filled with iron, and so they would look more green than blue. The life went from very simpler, simple forms to very complex life. You've got uh, you know the oxygen in the atmosphere increasing. You've got the solar luminosity being 30 40% dimmer and growing to what it is. All of these are major changes that could have radically impacted or that could have made Earth uninhabitable. But, you know, to your point, God is saying, hey, I know how this is going to play out. I'm going to orchestrate it so that it all works. And as the planet changes, the new things come in and ultimately we can be here and enjoy it all. Yeah, all leading up to the entry of human beings. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of careful preparation to create a window in which we can exist. Right. And that's Genesis 1, and Mm -hmm. that's what you're talking about here in Psalm 104. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to what we were talking about, the, the universe is a pretty dangerous place for life. <clears throat> but Earth are. is kind of almost unusual in how amenable it is to life. But even in the context of Earth being amenable, we see these same sort of cat- catastrophic processes. But instead of wiping out life, it's preparing the planet for even more life. And I'm amazed that we see just the right frequency, these big colliders, mm-hmm. so that God can step in create new life, and perfectly compensate for the brightening of the sun. Yeah. It's at the just right frequency rate of about every 35 million years, mm-hmm. which is what you need to stay in tune with what's happening uh, with the sun. And we benefit from all this. Look mm-hmm. at all the biodeposits we have as a consequence of this long history. Yeah. And I'm amazed that uh, some of the most valuable metals that sustain our civilization come from asteroids. I know. That's where you get a lot of your iridium from, <laughs> iridium and osmium, which are two well, really remarkable metals, are mostly <clears throat> extraterrestrial in that sense. Well, 80% of the golden circulation, 90% of the platinum comes from an asteroid. 50% yep. of the nickel we uh, have in circulation comes from an asteroid. So, yep. But you don't want those happening every day, do you? No, you don't. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think there's even a design element of how rapidly they happen. But, right, it's you know, it, it is just fascinating to me how well orchestrated all that is. You know, it's you can look at that as, well, why did God do this and kill everything? But really, it's it's this... It's this symphony that's all working together. You got these astronomical and geophysical and atmospheric and biological effects, and they're all working together that in spite of all that has gone on, Earth has remained within about a 20 degree Celsius window for its average global temperature for 4 billion years. That's incredible. Well, I like your symphony analogy because, I mean, you got all these different disciplines of science Mm -hmm. and God's working in every one of them to bring about the end result. So. Well, very good. I appreciate the discussion today, Hugh. And uh, you know, I want to thank you for joining us on Star, Cells, and God. I want to encourage you to join us in the comments below. Remember to like this video. You can subscribe for more content. We release new episodes each Wednesday for Star, Cells, and God. They're available on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I want to encourage you to share this video with your friends. And remember, the more we know about science, the more reasons we have to believe.